according to St. Matthew from the 22nd chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Matthew records, oh, this can be found on page 1535 of your pew Bible. Matthew records, Then the Pharisees went out, and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him, and they went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. This is a good day. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus, because nothing good comes from any other source. That little story for you. Before I was a pastor, I was what uh, people would call a road warrior. I was a salesman, and I had a territory that took me all through the San Francisco Bay Area at first, and then eventually into the Fresno area, the Central Valley. And in the Central Valley of California, there are warning signs along the highways, 99 especially. You've probably seen and There's a cutoff, a 152 that goes through a town called Las Banos, and you head that way to go over to Salinas and uh, uh, Gilroy and so forth. So it was one morning. Uh, the, the signs that, you've, that you may have seen, um, it says fog area or dense fog area. Have you ever seen those? Um, the sign is an attempt to warn us uh, that even though the road that you may be driving on now is perfectly clear, the section of road you are on can, and sometimes does, become so foggy that the visibility is near zero past your bumper. It is a warning to slow down, just in case conditions change. And we are getting, at this time of year, closer and closer, when we must take such signs like that in the Central Valley a little bit more seriously. Fall and winter driving in the San Joaquin Valley can get quite interesting, especially in the low-lying areas. 
And I can remember driving along at a blazing speed of 10 miles an hour on Interstate 99 on my way from Fresno to, to, to Salinas. And it wasn't a traffic jam, but instead what was causing me to go that speed was that at 4.30 a.m., the fog that I was driving through rendered my ability to see in front of my company car to not more than about 20 feet. And even the trucks were taking their time. And as I was driving along, fully alert, I saw a car come on up from behind me on the highway. And it was going really fast. And this person didn't see the freight truck in front of us with the poorly lit trailer until it was too late. And I knew this guy was in trouble, or it was probably a guy. That's how we drive. He was about to have a whole lot more excitement in his day than he really wanted. He hit the brakes at freeway speed, and immediately he lost control of his vehicle. He was headed toward the center divider, and, and back in the old days, the center divider, somebody had the brilliant plan to, to plant eucalyptus trees. And so he was heading towards those. But somehow he managed to avoid them. But his maneuvers had spun him around so that he shot back across the road to the other side. And he went down into a ditch. And the weird thing about the Valley Fog, as I had said, is that it can be clear. I mean, you could see at one moment, and he must have done that when he got it up to 70, 80, whatever he was doing. He was, he was moving. It can be clear. And then in an instant, the area can be thick as mud. So this driver did not heed the warnings. He and his car's undercarriage paid the price. And there happened to be a CHP officer that was behind him, that was following him, and I'm sure that he rendered his service at a cost, too. You know, in all the years that I drove, I couldn't tell you the number of cars that I've seen down in ditches along the 99 or the 152. There were quite a few. And it's no doubt that many of them had an experience similar to the one that I witnessed that morning, that something changed, and the next thing you know, you're in the ditch. And of course, ditches have been around for a long time. Before there were automobiles, and there have been many reasons for travelers to get stuck in ditches down through the ages. For centuries, thinkers of all kinds have used the idea of ditches as a metaphor for two sides that were both wrong, but were on opposite sides of the truth. In fact, the Pharisees and the Herodians in today's gospel, well, they hoped to get Jesus stuck into one such of the ditch. We met the Pharisees before, but the Herodians, they don't get all of that much ink in the New Testament. 
The Herodians, as their name implies, were supporters of the Herod family dynasty. And the interesting thing about the Herod family was that it was not Jewish. They maintained their rule with the support of the Roman occupation. And ordinarily, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they absolutely hated each other. And it says something about the desperation among the Pharisees, that they were willing to work with the Herodians, the unclean. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hoped to present Jesus with two ditches, with absolutely no road in between. They asked this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, if Jesus had said no, then the Herodians would have had evidence they needed to get Jesus arrested. If Jesus had said yes, then he would instantly become unpopular with the people who hated the Roman occupation. And either way, Jesus would be out of the picture, and oh boy, life and business would return to the way that it was before. And of course, Jesus saw through their plan immediately. He also understood something that they did not understand. Jesus understood that both civil authority and religious authority, both civil and religious authority, are of God. God authorizes and is in control of both types of authority. God is in, truly in control. The physical kingdoms of power and the spiritual kingdom of grace are not an either or, but a both and. That's the situation that we are in. And in the Old Testament reading for today, Isaiah points out that Cyrus, who was a, a pagan king of Persia, in spite of all outward appearances, is God's instrument. The Lord used him to work out history for the ultimate good of his people. And likewise, when Pilate boasts of his authority either to punish Jesus or to let him go, we read in, in John uh, 19.11, Jesus responded to him. He said, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. When Jesus said, therefore, render to Caesar the things of Caesar's, he was telling us that Caesar and all government is God's instrument at work in the physical world. And that obeying the laws of the land and participating in our democracy are part of our obedience to God. One more time. Obeying the laws of the land and participating in our democracy are part of our obedience, the priesthood of believers. It's part of our obedience to God. Now, as interesting as this little, little run-in was, and as nice as it is to know that faithful Christians are also faithful citizens and civil authorities, they're citizens of the civil authorities, surely there is more to learn from today's gospel reading. Please tell me there is. 
pastor? Well, I will. There's more than just driving in the fog. Here's where the context comes to our aid. This little run-in took place in the temple on the Tuesday before Jesus was crucified. And in a few days, he would die. And with his death, he would pull us all out of the ditches into which we have fallen. You see, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh work together to drag us into one of the two ditches. An investigation of the people in one of the ditches finds people who look at God's law as a superficial way, and they say it by this, hey, I can do that. And in this ditch are people who say things such as, well, I led a pretty good life. In this ditch, there are people that say, I've never murdered anyone or robbed a bank or anything like that. I'm faithful to my wife. I spend time with my kids. Yeah, there's a pretty good chance that I'll end up in heaven. This is the ditch, the ditch of self-righteousness. This is the ditch that we often associate with the Pharisees. This ditch is full of people who believe that they are pretty good and that God grades on a curve anyway. Now, if we were to take a look at the other ditch, on the other side of the road, our investigation of the people in that ditch finds people who are really depressed. They have looked at God's law thoroughly and deeply. They fully understand that they cannot keep it. An interview with these kind of people would find such thoughts such as, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm just too old to be saved. More maybe they say, no matter how hard I try, it's just not good enough. After all I have done, there is no way that God will let me into heaven. This is the ditch, the ditch of despair. The biblical poster child for this ditch, well, it's Judas, who hanged himself after he betrayed Jesus. This ditch is full of people who believe that their sin is stronger than God's forgiveness. These ditches actually have something pretty important in common. The people in this, these ditches, they depended on self. They depended on themselves. The people in the one ditch say, I am not good enough to get into heaven. The people in the other ditch say, I am not good enough to get into heaven. And every time we look to self, we get pulled into one of those ditches. Even those who say, 
I will do my best and God will do the rest, are in the self-righteous ditch. And as long as it is up to me, as long as it's up to you, you're in that ditch. You're in one of those ditches. And just as Jesus stayed out of the ditch when his enemies sprang their trap in today's gospel, he also provides a way out of the ditch for you and for me. He instructs us to give up ourselves, to give up ourselves and rest in him. The people in the ditch of despair are right about one thing, and that is this, that we can't live the perfect life needed for eternal salvation. But Jesus did. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And a few days after the events in today's gospel, he died a sacrificial death on the cross. And the following Sunday, he rose from the dead. And 40 days after that, he ascended into heaven. He did all the things that we confess in the creed, that we confess together during Amelia's baptism. He did them for us to pull us up out of the ditch, the ditch that leads to hell. And he pulled us up out of there and up onto the road that leads to eternal life. In today's gospel, Jesus said, Therefore, render to God the things that are God's. With his sacrificial death, Jesus rendered to God the payment for the sin of the world. That is, every sin. Every sin. For every person who has ever lived. For every person who lives now. And for every person who will ever live until the end of time, he has paid for your sin. He has paid for my sin. All of our sins are paid in full. Amen? Now the Pharisees and the Herodians in today's gospel tried to make Jesus irrelevant by asking a trick question. And when that didn't work, they gave up on subtlety. And they decided that the only way to remove Jesus from the scene was to remove him from this life, to kill him. And during the next few days, they carried out their plan and they arranged to have Jesus crucified. And when Jesus was dead, the powers of sin, death, and the devil thought they had won. But they didn't. They didn't understand that the death of Jesus is his greatest victory. It is by this victory that we receive forgiveness. It is by his victory that we receive life and salvation. It is by this victory that even though we die, we shall rise again. For Jesus himself did not remain in the grain grave, but he became the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. And it is his resurrection, his resurrection is the assurance that the work that he did, the perfect work he worked on the cross, is the ultimate victory. 
It is the assurance that we no longer live in the ditch, but that we are now safe on the road that leads to life. The coin in today's gospel had an image. The cross, on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, for us, is the image of the invisible God. And in that image, you see that God of the universe has done exactly what he has done for you to make you his very own. In conclusion, Paul write to the, wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 8.32. He writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In the name of Jesus, amen.